Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Better Movement Podcast. This is Todd Hargrove. This podcast is listener-supported, so if you want to show your support, you can become a subscriber at toddhargrove.substack.com. My guest this week is Karen O'Sullivan. Karen is a senior lecturer at the University of Limerick in Ireland, where he does research and teaches about musculoskeletal pain, especially back pain. He also has a clinical practice where he helps people with chronic pain. I've been following Kieran's research and writing for at least eight years, and I've always been struck by its relevance for clinicians. He does a very good job simplifying many different threads of complex research into an approach that's very evidence-based and common sense and actionable. And he also has a skill at translating back and forth between language that's appropriate for researchers versus clinicians versus patients, because each context requires a different way of talking about it, and he's very good at kind of toggling back and forth. In this episode, we talked about uh, simple versus complex pains and how to tell the difference, risk factors for transitioning from acute to chronic pain, whether patient education about pain can help prevent that transition, uh, how not to deliver pain science education to clients, uh, and also the topics of sitting and lifting at work and their connection to chronic pain. So without further ado, here's Karen O'Sullivan. Karen, thanks for coming on my podcast. Thanks very much, Todd. So uh, as you know, I've asked you because you've got a ton of, you've done a ton of research that has been really helpful to me as someone who's uh, trying to help other people with pain. I think it's helpful to other people too. And not just like in a theoretical sense, but like in a real practical, hands-on, you can use this uh, tomorrow uh, kind of information about sitting and lifting technique and pain education and all these uh, issues that are really relevant to therapists. And I want to get to all those, but I kind of want to start out with with uh, an idea that I heard you talk about in an interview years ago, which is a really helpful idea to me and kind of organizes my thinking. Well, you made a distinction between pains that are more simple and pains that are more complex. So you can, can you talk about what is the difference? Why does it matter? Yeah, um, and of course, I suppose I should preface this by saying that some of my uh, descriptions might be um, looked down upon or they might horrify some people who truly understand, you know, the physiology of pain. So this uh, ex- these explanations are not pitched to try and convince somebody who's read the entire volume of works by Melzick and Moll. And this is very much how I would try and explain things to patients. And so a lot of the time, it's easy enough to try and explain to people when they have what we might call simple pain, where they've sprained an ankle, you know, torn a hamstring muscle, uh, tweaked their knee. People get that concept that, you know, I've injured a tissue and it will go through a normal process of repair and regeneration. It can get trickier when pain is a little bit atypical, either because it involves more complex factors or the degree of natural recovery is a bit more, you know, um, I suppose, slow and sluggish. And so it's in those kind of situations that I'll try and get people to understand sometimes when pain is closely related to tissue injury and give me some examples of that in the past. So have you ever sprained your ankle? What did that look like? Was it swollen and bruised? And did it 
respond predictably when you twisted it one way it hurt it and you know it didn't when you twisted it the other way and then contrasting that with their current pain situation which might not always have had a traumatic onset might not behave as predictably and might behave in a way that's a little weird if you were considering pain to always be about injury and in those slightly more complex situations we have to first of all get people to understand that it's a little different And then, without scaring them, show them that there's multiple different things that can be involved in these more complex situations. Okay, so what what are some of the other things that you're probably going to talk to people about those other things that matter, and how do you talk about it? Sure. So the mistake I've made, and I still think a lot of us make, is that we start telling them the things that can be involved in pain, and these are accurate, but they might not um, apply to their pain, and then we get some understandable pushback. So, for example, I've done this myself before, where... You know, I'm tight for time. I've only got 30 seconds. This person is taking a long time to tell me their story, but I feel I know what's going on. So I'm going to cut them off and tell them, you know, some maybe accurate things about how hurt is not equal to harm and psychosocial factors are important in recovery. And by pushing that information on them without really getting to know them or and, and knowing exactly what's going on in their pain, that's gone down very badly sometimes. So in it can be tricky, but as much as possible, a big part of it is giving them enough time to um, explain their story and then identify the key parts. So, for example, we've done a study, Ian Cowell in Imperial did a study recently looking at um, physios interviewing patients. And what he noticed was that sometimes the physios were trying to do really useful things, but it wasn't what the patient was interested in. So, for example, the patient would say something like, you know, recently um, I had an MRI scan and it showed disc degeneration. And the physio would come in straight away and give a long two-minute explanation about how, you know, imaging isn't everything. Discs can be degenerated, but not painful. And they would give this big, long explanation. And then the patient would say, oh, yeah, I know that. I wasn't worried about it, you know. Um, But, you know, I've done this myself where I, I, I almost want to, I could say, help the patient, maybe show off a little bit that I've learned something. And I try to tell them all the stuff I know. Whereas what Ian's work was looking at is, are we getting better at really figuring out, as a person tells their story, these are the two things that are really important in terms of the development of my pain, like this big thing happened, or this is the thing I'm really worried about. And then, so when we talk about this biopsychosocial model of pain, it is that idea, you know, conceptually, that these are, in one sense, separate things, the biological, the psychological, and the social. But of course, over time, it's much more messy than that. And it's a little bit trying to get the person to talk about what's going on in their life. And at the back of my mind, I'll have a little checklist of have we spoken about their work, their family, their relationships, their activity, their sleep. And, you know, uh, so that as we go through that history, we identify some common features. And I'd like to pretend that at the end of the first appointment, I've always covered all the things that could be there. But of course I haven't. But if I've at least established some semblance of a rapport, and not offended them and got across the patient that I'm genuinely interested and we've identified some important factors, then they might come back a second time and we'll explore some more. Yeah, it's, I, I, it reminds me of kind of my thinking process as I've tried to apply some you know, pain education with my clients. The first thing you do is you learn all these facts and then you start to think in terms of like a curriculum where you're going to tell people this and tell people that and just kind of like project all of these facts into their brain, but the more effective approach is to really listen, listen, listen to their story and then kind of like see see what they already know about it and what they think about it. And then think in terms of like evolving 
or changing that where possible in the direction which conforms a little bit more towards a healthy and accurate picture instead of yeah. like you say cutting them off and giving them little lectures and and not listening very well yeah and i think this is a real challenge for us because you know we would all probably be comfortable with if you could say look this is the higher growth protocol for educating patients and you say these you know four sentences in this order and then they will accept that information without question and no other doctor physio family member will ever contradict it and it will all be smooth but First of all, we're not really sure if we need to give everybody the same information. You know, we don't, if you've got um, coronary artery disease or hypertension, but you're not a smoker, nobody talks to you about smoking cessation. Um, so if you've somebody who's got a lot of back pain, but fear and catastrophizing really isn't a big feature, we shouldn't really be going down that, but it can be very important for others. So there's probably, I don't know what the number is, but there might be 10 or 20 key messages that we think would kind of form our little encyclopedia of targets in terms of education but we've got to try and figure out which are the three or four that are really key for this person in terms of understanding it and then look there's a little bit of a dance in terms of trying to figure out what kind of um message or messenger is an appropriate um, vessel for transmitting that education you know i will i think there are some people who want me to um tell them with a sense of authority what that i think you know this is what's going on and other people where they'll be a little bit um happier to be involved in the shared decision-making, you know? And and even shared decision-making, if we look at that, like I, I hope that over time I try to get patients involved in what's going on and get a sense of this is your goals and what's valued to you. But I know from personal experience, not every patient is really comfortable with that, especially initially. Um, and I've had situations where, you know, we'll try and set goals. The idea being that day one, we'll know exactly where they're going. But in my experience, these change a lot. And so what was the goal at the end of day one really isn't the person's goal they've realized by the third or fourth treatment. Uh-huh. So you, you mentioned a few times kind of the, the, the need on the part of the therapist to kind of project some authority to the client and satisfy their expectations about you being an expert. And I, I, I felt that a lot myself. You know, you want to show them that you know what you're talking about. And well, one of the things you really, they really want that there's kind of a hope for a lot of them is they come in and, and you're kind of like someone like a car mechanic that can use this sophisticated diagnostic techniques to pinpoint the one thing that's the problem. And then, uh, you know, the one thing that's the solution with the fancy trick, uh, as opposed to this kind of common sense problem solving people skills, you know. You're kind of working with stuff they've already done, but tweaking it a little bit. Um, I think it, as I've kind of adjusted more and more to the more common sense talking to the person style, I've realized that my clients are actually, you know, a lot of them are pretty comfortable with that and like that. And <laughs> they don't need me to be spouting off a lot of sophisticated vocabulary to think that I know something. It is, yeah, it's true. but but I'm, And that's my sense as well. But I'm not sure everybody will be comfortable with that. And, and so I do think, you know, if you had a practice or, a, you know, a healthcare setting where there was a range of staff, you might need a mix of personality types. Because I don't think, for example, we should, as therapists, have to transform our personality. You know, oh, look, this is John coming in. He wants me to be Mr. Motivator. And the next person wants me to sit down and let them cry on my shoulder a little bit. You know, um, we can probably be open to different types of personalities, but... Sometimes we might just need to spot that a few patients need a slightly different um, approach, or maybe even sometimes a different professional. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had situ- sorry, I've had situations where um, 
I've had patients kind of probably connect with me well personally and I probably was good at listening to what they were saying and so they would end up saying after a couple of sessions maybe one or two I think this is great I, I, I you know you've listened to what I've said I just don't want to do what you're saying I think if you could do like the passive treatments that you know the last 27 physios have done um, that would be great and then we'll keep coming and and I would say essentially no, <laughs> but I would in a in a hopefully empathetic way. But I would say no by all means. I'm not going to judge anybody for going off and seeing somebody else. But what I am offering is A, B, and C. And I think there is that sense that it can be tricky to try and both empathize with the person, connect with them, and still challenge what they want if we truly think it's something that that might be, you know, that's where there's a better option. Yeah. So I, I, I get in kind of a better radar myself of when people come in, I feel like I can kind of quickly determine whether they're the kind of person that wants to be fixed like a mechanic and are really kind of holding out a lot of belief and hope that that's possible versus someone who knows that this is a complex multifactorial problem that's going to maybe improve slowly over time. And they're going to have to work on lots of different things, like maybe work on their sleep or maybe get a little bit more exercise and they shouldn't expect magic fixes, and this is a this is a process because there's two different types of people that come in like that. And um, I, I'm wondering how how quickly can you tell that, or, or what percentage of your people come in that are kind of fall into? Do you know what I'm say, saying about these? Two yeah, no, I do. And, and I suppose this reminds me of the fact that sometimes when I tell people, which is the fact that you know I rarely see people with acute pain or even subacute pain by the nature of the fact that I work full time in the university and I'm involved in research and all that, I see a small number of patients. And that almost by default becomes people who've had pain for a long period of time. I set up very long appointments. I charge quite a bit of money for those appointments. And that in itself means if you had a simple sprained ankle, you would never spend that, wait that long to get it seen by me or be willing to pay that much money. And so that kind of biases my sample. And, and But I think that in itself means it's probably people who have tried something else before and are almost willing to say, look, I'll, I'll have another spin at this. But I have to say that it is a challenge if you were designing a healthcare service where I'm dealing with acute, subacute, chronic, and that big mix, and trying to, I suppose, um, figure out who's open to what kind of treatment. But when people here, I see a lot of, um, when I talk to, say, family members or the physios, and I say, I mostly see people who've had pain for many, many years. They think it's terrible. That must be so hard. Whereas I would struggle right now a lot more seeing people whose pain was maybe six to eight weeks where it's clear to an experienced clinician this is going down the wrong path, but they are still, they see, you know, they are in an, still an acute tissue healing phase a lot of the time. And so they are probably still maybe waiting for an MRI scan or waiting for rest to recover. And they're tricky situations to handle because, you know, they could, they could logically argue this, this seems like just a bad sprain. Um, and so it can be very tricky in those situations. I know I've had, I can think of one, a particular uh, lady, young lady who I saw who had had a car accident and was reporting whiplash type neck pain. Um, and it had been maybe six weeks or something like that when she was waking up at night, um, you know, um, having kind of post-traumatic stress, thinking she was dead, picturing the impact of the car, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in her background, she had a significant um, anxiety disorder. And then the reason she was seeing me is I'd seen her mother and her sister for persistent neck pain before that. Um, she was very bright, but at one point she was saying to me, she was really struggling. And she said, look, 
you know, I've read about whiplash and I've seen that some people get better and some people don't. So based on what you're hearing about me, which do you think I am? And and it was I bring that up because it was um it's it's an interesting test of like, you know, we want to be honest. I don't think we want to be lying to patients, but my instinct was you could be in trouble here. Um, I didn't necessarily say it or phrase it in that language, but there were several things, even though she was only six weeks in, that would make me concerned about her future prognosis. How much do you think you can like, you know, so you, you know that so after six weeks, some, there's a certain amount of people where that pain is going to continue and a certain amount where it's going to go away. And you have some idea about the risk factors that are involved there. Um, yep. How, so, so, so the, uh, you know, the person gets to someone like you early on in the game and your, your, your job is to make sure they don't become the person who's, who's chronic. What, how, how powerful do you think that intervention is? I mean, some of it is you're, you're going to, let's say, you know, that one of the risk factors is they're the type of person that catastrophizes or, or has anxiety or something like that, or doesn't sleep that well. Um, how, 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 yeah, how, how able are you to get them to stop doing that? You can't just say yeah. stop catastrophizing on, on or sleep better. To, um, yeah, to set a very pessimistic tone, not as good or as powerful as I would like to be or as I thought I would be. Um, I think we see, well, we have lots of problems with how we care with aches and pains like back pain. I see, think we have two very different problems. At least now, again, it might vary between public-private healthcare settings and, and different socioeconomic situations. But broadly speaking, I've, I think we have a huge problem of over-treatment early on of routine problems. And then at the flip side, under-treatment of chronic complex problems with comorbid health complaints. So for example, when we look at, there's been several studies looking at the likelihood, if you've got, particularly if you've got enough money to seek care or you've got a good healthcare system, which provides it publicly, routine, simple back pain, especially acute, subacute gets an awful lot of treatment, a lot of investigations, and it doesn't do a whole lot. And so my sense of the biggest benefit of seeing, you know, an evidence-based practitioner early on is not what they offer, but what they will keep you away from and just keep you away from harm. And again, that's probably a sign that a lot of the stuff we do isn't particularly effective, but I do think there's still value in keeping people away from harm. And there was a study published just yesterday, which we can come back to around that. The second thing then, however, is that I think we spend so much money treating back pain and other disorders like that early on. And then we realize, oh, this isn't helping. We then abandon people and just say, well, nothing can be done for back pain. You've had this for two years. We've had an MRI scan and a fusion and a bunch of surgery or a physio, and that hasn't helped. So good luck. You know, we wish you the best with your disability payments and, and, and you know, long-term medications. Whereas my sense is we should be, if possible, withdrawing some of that early care and especially some of that early preventative material and trying to to support people with chronic health conditions. Because the people I think of with the chronic health conditions, um, they're the people with back pain, yes, but there are also some of them going into another clinic in the same healthcare setting for their COPD or their obesity or their mental health or their sleep apnea or distress or, or those kind of things. And, you know, when we... In my university, we teach students, we still have modules that look like musculoskeletal, neurorespiratory. But if you extract out the key interventions we give for most of those chronic health conditions, a pulmonary rehab class and a falls class and a multiple sclerosis class and a knee arthritis class, they're not the same, but there are major chunks of those classes that have you know, similarities. And I think 
for those chronic healthcare conditions, there's value in almost the role of exercise, but also building up resilience and self-management. The problem is self-management is often um, interpreted as you're on your own, son, you know, best of luck. Whereas my sense of self-management is I'm going to gradually stop doing stuff to you and giving you medications, but I'm always here to offer advice and nudge you in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to come back to that idea of just kind of general health interventions and general exercise for these chronic complex conditions. But uh, I want to stick on this idea of the transition between mm. an acute problem and, and then a chronic problem. Um, I was very interested in this research from uh, the Vani Apkarian Lab. Mm. Do, you, do you know that research? So he's trying to predict who's going to transit. You know, we, I think he found people who have some acute onset of back pain, might be a car accident, I'm not sure, but he thinks there's a certain percentage of them that are going to go chronic, and he thinks he can predict that by the amount of emotional stuff that's going on in their brain at a particular time, which makes you wonder if you get to these people early with like a Laura Mermosley style pain education program, uh, can you prevent that, that process from happening? Uh, and then Lorimer did a study well, this one we talked about just uh, uh, before we started the podcast, uh, where he tried to intervene on people early on with his pain education program, and the results were a little bit disappointing. Can can you talk about that study and what it, what you thought of it? Sure. Um, just to uh, I suppose acknowledge at the start when you mentioned Carian's research, I, I said I know of it, but that doesn't mean I understand it. I admire it, and you know, physiologically, it makes a lot of sense in terms of the 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 work that Lorimer and others speak about in terms of the threat um, element of pain. And there has been some nice work showing there are at least people whose scans appear to suggest, you know, a relationship to ongoing pain. Um, and so even though Lorimer didn't use those scans to identify... Wait, can can people, I interrupt for just a second? Yeah. Before we get to Lorimer, tell me about your level. You say you don't understand the Apcarian research. I definitely don't understand it myself. What's your level of skepticism that this is a real thing that he's dis oh, discovered here? No, sorry. Yeah. So good clarification. I'm not even skeptical of the finding. I think that might be absolutely the case. My concern is almost... How much of that, for example, is genetic and how much of that is um, a marker of lots of other things? One of the, I suppose, the things, the mistakes I've made is I've, in my head, categorized these risk factors. And I've said, here is stress. There's this different thing then that's called anxiety, a different thing called depression, another thing called fear, then catastrophizing. Then there's this other thing called self-efficacy, which seems to be a bit like some of them. And then... When we look at, we'll say, how much these things overlap, when you look at the, the relationship to pain, if I only study catastrophizing, it looks like it's, it's related to pain. But if I study, say, catastrophizing and anxiety and depression, maybe the depression one superimposes it. In other words, while these things are not the same, they overlap or have parallels. And if you were particularly interested in how it, you know, the attachment between a parent and their child, that might also overlap with some of these things. And so... I'm not sure, for example, when we look at some of those findings on a brain MRI, how much of them we can attribute to one clinical parameter of anxiety, depression, et cetera. But I think it reminds us, if nothing else, that when we look at somebody's lumbar spine MRI scan, we can't really predict the future. When we look at their brain, we can predict it a little bit. And so even if we just think, well, therefore, how much time am I going to spend looking at their thoughts and and stuff that's going on in their head versus their back it's it's worth thinking about it i'm just not sure 
that I can then kind of just reassure that away from them. You know, some of these are, uh, even if we think they're like, let's say, related to anxiety or emotions, some of these are very long-standing inbuilt traits. And maybe I can't reassure them, but maybe I'd want to be wary of putting that person in an MRI scanner further back. Right, right. So we know from looking at, you know, the research on the predictive value of MRIs versus the predictive value of what's going on in the brain, that maybe the brain and the emotional areas are something we should be thinking about. It's playing a role, but how able are we as practitioners to get in there and use petting education to change whatever variables they are, whether it's catastrophizing or kinesiophobia or fear, or anxiety or depression, how able are we to do that using pain education techniques you know, even if we catch them early, what, what does the research say about the efficacy of that kind of stuff right now? Yeah. And so I suppose we'll probably need to divide that in two ways because we're probably right now talking about acute and, and the stuff that doesn't settle. So we might come back to that. But in terms of the persistent pain, of course, there's lots of different types of education, which we could touch on. But the pain neuroscience edu- education does look like it changes people's beliefs about pain a little bit, reassures them in terms of catastrophizing. And so it does show we can you know, on average, help people and reassure them. And so that's a positive thing. It doesn't mean it's the only way we can reassure them, but I think it's positive and, again, biologically plausible. And while it's, you know, the some of the pain neuroscience stuff has probably received a bit of criticism in recent years and some of it fair, I don't think anybody has really shown any harm related to it. You know, uh, there's, uh, so we should remember that as well, that it's biologically plausible. There's probably a question about how, how large the effect is. Um the point we were just dealing with then was the acute pain and the, the kind of the, can we help people with acute pain transition to no pain or to a less painful state? Um, and the paper we were talking about is the PREVENT trial done by a really great group, Adrian Traeger, who's a very impressive early to mid-career researcher, was involved with Lorimer and those on that study. And they took an existing questionnaire, which was known to, or at least suspected to identify high-risk cases. And the idea was that if we give these an explained pain type intervention compared to a control intervention that will help smooth their trajectory. There were essentially in the in the long run, it didn't make any difference. So there was um, no difference in outcome. There's a, poss- a couple of different reasons. Some people will say, well, that's because this is all nonsense. You know, I don't hold to that. I think there are some other reasons for that. These would include, number one, the good news, I guess, both groups actually did a bit better than they expected. So while they were trying to identify a group with a poor prognosis, both groups actually did pretty well. And therefore, if both groups do well, it's pretty hard to show that one group did better. Another interesting part, and again, I suppose to give the background to this, I think they chose a very interesting and troublesome comparison. So if you look at a lot of trials that show a benefit, it's because you compare it to nothing. So we're doing a systematic review at the moment, and it's the same as a lot of trials. Exercise is better than doing absolutely nothing. It's about as good as doing another form of exercise or a CBT type thing. And so in a lot of the trials, if you compare my new Hargrove and O'Sullivan combined approach to doing nothing, you know, it's good. That's great. But of course, how much of that is there? The intervention, the time, the attention, all those kind of things. And so in that prevent trial, they did a very thorough thing where they said, look, we're going to give them the same exposure, patient therapist contact, but we're not going to educate them. We're just going to give them kind of like an inert, uh, meaningless treatment. Um, And so that would be a good comparison in many ways. But when you look at what the treatment was, they basically listened and affirmed, you know, and kind of um, empathized with people. 
And of course, when we think about the stuff we touched on earlier about the importance of just acknowledging and counseling and, you know, not judging people, it's it's not a it's not that they did anything wrong, but it's probably it's arguable, I think, that there was still an active component to that intervention. Now, so you know, I don't think that trial shows pain neuroscience does nothing. I think it has an effect in persistent pain. The effect looks like it's modest. I think it comes back to that argument about even if it's acute pain and it looks troublesome, thankfully most of them still get better. And so I'm still leaning towards the 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 argument that if it's acute pain, still don't intervene with too much, too complicated, too soon. Because we've seen a few studies rarely showing um, if you really go all in on some of the whiplash type, you know, um, situations with multidisciplinary care, the outcomes can even be a little bit worse than doing nothing. Right. Right. So the, the um, you know, the effects of um, these types of interventions, psychosocial interventions, uh, pain education interventions on pain over time is not great. Is it better on disability? Are we better at treating uh, the, the disability from chronic pain uh, compared so, to the pain? Yeah. So I don't know because I'm going to give you a contradictory response here. So Chris Maher from the University of Sydney, like the world's most cited researcher back then, his group, they did a, an analysis of trials because a lot of people, I would have said, it's probably easier to improve disability than pain. They did a, an analysis of the outputs from Cochrane systematic reviews and they showed no, that when you look at the effectiveness or ineffectiveness, you could say, of our treatments, it helps pain a tiny bit. It helps disability about the same tiny amount. So that's one argument and I don't doubt their data in any way. As against that, then in our own trials, and a few other trials I'm familiar with, you could argue the effects are small overall, but the effects were consistently better and lasted longer for disability. Um, so I don't know how then what's my take home message. You know, I could say, so I think if I put it this way, the interventions I'm studying and using, it looks like it might help disability a bit more, but then you could argue, well, it's, is it helping any of them pain or disability all that much? Now, what I don't like um, is when people start saying, well, you know, because my my intervention improves disability, pain isn't that important. Let's just focus on disability. You know, I still see lots of patients and they come in reporting pain. And a zero to 10 pain scale is a very arbitrary thing. But it, if it was, if it wasn't important, then we shouldn't measure it. And I can't sit here criticizing, you know, surgical trials for being ineffective because they didn't change pain then say, but it's okay if my trials don't change because <laughs> yeah. they change catastrophizing and acceptance, which nobody cared about. <laughs> yeah, 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 interesting. Um, so is it, when you were a clinician, you started, I think you mentioned earlier that you kind of came in with a lot of ideas that you would now criticize and have a different idea about. Uh, I'm curious, since you've been a researcher, as you've been learning more and more, what's some, what were some major shifts in the way you've you've uh, thought about things or maybe even in the last couple of years. Yeah. And things like, you know, much and all as we'd like to think that we're all led by data. I don't think we are. We will be persuaded in our, in our personal life, our dietary habits or excess habits by lots of things, our own mood and what's popular. And I want to try something different and all that. And so I have definitely gone through some of the, the phases that you know when I first qualified thinking pain equals injury and giving people lots of education which almost certainly scared them and made them more avoidant of exercise and more anxious to treat seek imaging etc I went through a phase then of becoming 
uh, quite complicated in the exercise advice I gave around whether it was McKenzie exercises or core stability exercise. But again, that was all still in the tissue injury. We must protect the back mold. Then over time, I became more aware of the pain science literature and obviously Peter O'Sullivan's work, which has been a massive influence on me in terms of not just educating people, but I would say critically showing them how to move in a way that's more empowering. Um, and I suppose the, this is a slightly more pessimistic note. Now what I'm probably reflecting on is how this can be really, I think, empowering and effective on an individual basis with a patient in my clinic. Unfortunately, I'm probably skeptical about how much, how scalable some of that is and how if we keep under-resourcing community health and penalizing people for recovering, then we're really fighting an uphill battle. By that, I mean, I um, in Ireland, if I give one example, it's not just in Ireland. If, if I was in a car accident today, let's say me and my wife were in a car accident today and, and we hurt our necks or backs, and we decided to, to be involved in a medical legal case for whatever reasons, and because of injuries, for example, and let's say in a year's time, I feel better, but my wife is still very sore in three years' time she will get a lot more money than me in three years' time than I will. And the Irish legal system won't solve our case for three, four, five years. And so you end up with a situation that a patient knows themselves or their lawyer will tell them, if you get better now, you will get €100,000 less money in two years' time. And I'm not saying that they that's the only factor, but why would you set up a system to penalise recovery? And then we can talk about any number of other ways in which the system is complicating it. If you want, if you, let's say you're a very well-informed patient with knee osteoarthritis, and you've read all the guidelines and you see, actually what I need with my knee osteoarthritis is to lose weight and get a supervised exercise program and maybe look after my mental health. But actually my government or my private health insurer will fund an MRI and a knee arthroscopy, but they won't fund dietitian, psychologist and physio. And so I can try and charm them into my conservative rehab and, you know, the drugs don't work message. But if I'm penalizing them for choosing the better option, you know, we can't blame people for, for that. So, so I think there's, there's lots of things we don't know about pain. But I had a conversation with Jan Hart, the chiropractor from Denmark, a wonderful guy, a few years ago. And we were discussing how if we had a choice, would you choose to uh, spend lots of money finding out new things about back pain, for example, because there's lots we don't understand. Or could you just implement the stuff we do know and stop implementing the stuff that we're pretty sure doesn't work? We both said we'll go with that. Even if it means we don't have the answer, there's so much crap and so much blocking people from doing the right thing that there'd be a lot to be said for that element. And so that's kind of where I'm, and so I'm in this kind of no man's land at the moment where I still think the clinical stuff is powerful in the right hands if we train people well. And I do think it won't be enough to have public education messages and community health programs for the high-risk, complicated cases. But we probably need a better baseline level of care where we keep people away from harm, get them involved in what we might call light-touch programs, community exercise programs, healthy living programs, stop smoking programs. And then if you're really stuck and you're a, you know, a young person who's off work and you've got a family, we need to get you to back to work, we should probably spend a lot of money on conservative rehab in that case. So you mentioned that there's kind of a set of uh, practices and beliefs and understandings that represent uh, pretty obvious facts about back pain and its and, and the way it develops and, and, and what's what's a good treatment that everyone would, would probably agree with and everyone should be doing 
like a minimum level. Have you done research studying what's someone's chance of getting that type of uh, treatment from a provider when they go in to, to get treatment or like what percentage of like PTs or different back pain treaters are likely to give treatment that that is in kind of rough correspondence with something they definitely should be doing. Yeah. So I haven't done much of this, but like there's, there's, there's been lots of people doing stuff like this and, and any different settings. So for example, we know when they brought in, I think it was in Finland, uh, a situation where they basically stopped in the public hospitals, you know, um, people being sent for knee arthroscopies for knee um, degenerative cartilage um, problems. Um, there was a massive drop in the in the rates of arthroscopies and people didn't end up with, you know, more problems. But because that was done in the public system, the rate in the private system just increased a little. Uh-huh. In other words, people just went next door, you know, and it just shows us kind of the limits of how you do these things. There's been lots of studies showing that the beliefs of healthcare professionals vary. So we've done plenty of stuff showing, you know, I'm, I'm a physiotherapist, I'd be critical of my own practice and some of the things that physios do, but the beliefs of healthcare Practitioners such as physios are much better than they were. Student physiotherapists have pretty good beliefs, and that continues into later into into their careers. So there's some positive things. What we've shown as well is that you know changing practice is hard. So for example, we've done studies and others have where if I bring you onto a course, Todd, and I give you a questionnaire at the start of saying some things, and then I spend maybe a day or two telling you stuff, you know, hurts not harm. And I ask you again at the end of the two days after beating it into you for two days to repeat the questionnaire. Thankfully, you will agree with some few things I've said and your beliefs will change. It looks, however, like that that doesn't necessarily mean you change what you do with patients. And in fact, Emmanuel Brunner in Switzerland did this lovely study a few years ago where he did just that. He trained people, asked them then at the end of the course. Now, these are kind of scenarios tell me how you would treat these patients. And of course, afterwards, they said, I would do the guidelines. There's no imaging, no way, no drugs. It's all, you know, self-management and support. And then he sent in actors into the practices six months later, two different patients, I think, to each one with their consent. So the people on the course knew there would be at some point, um, you know, these actors coming in. And you got to think, if I agreed to fake patients coming into my clinic, I'd probably be pretty confident that I am going to do the right thing. Um, And, you know, in this place, and, you know, we might say, oh, this is terrible, but it's probably representative in that um, the patients, when they came in, they did not get the guideline-based treatment, and the physios didn't necessarily, a few did, but most of them didn't even spot that it was a fake patient. And again, that doesn't mean they're terrible physios, it means we all have habits, and, and it's hard to change diet, and it's hard to change what we do, but it's especially hard if you're going to get penalized. So if you're in, say, Seattle, and the government or your funder will say, I will pay you more for doing crap. You'd want to be a very ethical person who already is quite wealthy and doesn't need to pay a mortgage, you know, to, for that not to influence you in the slightest. So we've got almost those different complicating things. And so I end up being a little bit of a jack of all trades. So, for example, I'm a clinician, I teach, I do some research, but now I'm on the board of our national body and I'm the director of professional development. And part of those roles is almost like trying to advocate not just in a narrow physio is great rule, but almost like stop trying to get the government and health service providers to stop doing crap and just do the stuff that people internationally say works. Because I think at least in some of the countries I'm familiar with, physiotherapists and organizations like us, and I'm not saying it's just physios, this could apply to lots of other sensible practitioners, but we're not as well organized. 
as some other professions. And again, I don't want to get into well, that profession is the troublesome one, but some are better funded, better organized, and better at arguing their case. And um, again, that can come across like a sales pitch for so just fun physio. But actually, I'm more than happy that if somebody can be sent, seen by Jan Hartvigsen, the chiropractor, or you know, sensible evidence-based practitioners. We just need to stop some of the harm first. Yeah, stop doing the crap because the bad incentives mm. is step one, step one, I yeah. suppose, before we get to this more advanced stuff. So let, let's shift gears a little bit. We've been talking a lot about how we spent too much time on um, you know, peripheral issues in the tissue stuff. What about sitting? Uh, you've looked into, uh, I know you, you think that there's still a place for, uh, you know, obviously some pains are simple. Some pains are related to movement. Uh, to what degree, is, how often is it going to be the case that someone who comes into your office has got, hey, I've got back pain. It's associated with sitting. It's worse when I'm sitting. It's kind of not so bad when I'm not sitting. And I think it has something to do with the way I'm sitting. Well, tell us about the research you've done into, you know, sitting and pain and whether you can you can help people uh, with pain while sitting by by working on their posture. And also, mm. I'm curious, um, when, it, it, when people have a habitual way of sitting, is it possible that that's <clears throat> not their most comfortable way to sit? Mm. I mean, that's not. And, and, yeah. So and you, you could help them find a better way. Yeah, and I think if you can, we should embrace that. The question is how much we go chasing it. So, for example, if we were going to have this conversation, I'd divide it into people who have pain and people who don't. And if you're somebody who doesn't have pain, I wouldn't spend one second thinking about your sitting posture. So today from my university, because we're now back in the university, uh, but we they only want to send there when we're doing face-to-face teaching, so I'll still be at home two to three days a week. But they sent out an email today saying we're going to have, you know, I've got some laptops and monitors here at home and inside work. But they're going to, um, in some weird way, perform an ergonomic assessment in everybody's uh, workplace in their, like, the kids' playroom or the bedroom at home. And I'm saying if people are pain-free and they're feeling good, the only reason you're probably doing that is because you're afraid of being sued. It's not because you don't want to be seen as being negligent. But if somebody's pain-free, leave them alone. You know, and, and I think that applies to more things than we think about. We can go back to lifting technique and, and all that kind of stuff. And so if you're pain-free, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. However, if you're sore doing something, and this would apply to if your ankle is sore running or if your back is sore sitting, there is no harm whatsoever in exploring if, you know, changing something about that feels better. And so, for example, if somebody had either a sore foot a while ago and a podiatrist colleague of mine recommended different runners and it's helped my foot pain that they're a bit more cushioned and that doesn't mean I think that they're the best runners for everybody but it helped me get to a period where my running on harder surfaces was sore and I changed the loading on it and if somebody has a sore back and we can find a way of putting them on a chair that feels a bit more comfortable great and if that happens to be sitting on a saddle chair or with a lumbar roll I'm actually fine with that However, my sense is we become very fixated that there is one correct way to sit. And, you know, all the surveys we've done suggest that there is a way which is never slouching and slumping. It's around sitting upright, shoulders back, chest out. And we see this stronger in some countries. When I ask people, you know, of these countries, which, which, which country picked out the most upright? People can tell. And when I ask people, you know, which gender do you think is more concerned about sitting upright? People can tell. Which country is the most upright? So I'll give you the survey. It was England, uh, actually Britain, Ireland, Germany, Netherlands, 
one of those countries had a much more significant preference for upright chest out shoulders back. England? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not European, so I don't... Oh, it's not European. It was Germany. By by a significant... That was my second. That was my second. Yeah, yeah. And then it was... But even with the English thing, for example, there are cultural reasons. And if you ask people, if you read around this kind of sociocultural literature around posture, it's very much tied up with Victorian ideas about, you know, deportment and carrying yourself with elegance because, you know, the the manual laborers were walking around doing all the work and and not, you know, looking as elegant. But it's much more around sophistication and elegance. And so my, I'm only half joking when I say to people around sitting posture, it's like, if you're pain-free, never think about it. Unless you're going on a date or going for an interview, because then people will judge you for it. It won't mean you get less back pain, but, you know, if you want to kind of impress that guy or girl, you know, yeah, it might it might pay you to sit up straight a little bit, but that's not about your discs or your back. So, but going back to the people with pain, I don't in any way kind of want anybody to suffer. So if somebody has pain sitting, I'll explore it, but I'll want there to be an off as well as an on. So a lot of people will say, my pain is worse doing sitting. Great. But is it better standing and walking? And often they'll say, no, it's bad in all sustained positions. And so that really changes my sense. And especially if they start saying, and my neck and my shoulders, and I'm quite tired, and I'm not really sure how it started, and it's all a bit atypical. Whereas you will see patients where they'll say, it hurts sitting on that couch, but not that chair, or in this car, but not, uh, it hurts in the car, but not in the, the Jeep or the SUV. And, so, and, and, and it doesn't hurt in any other position people where they say it hurts me on my road bike, but not the mountain bike. And there are specific loading parameters related to local tissue pain that you can justify. And again, I got to be honest and say, it doesn't mean we know that that's the right thing to do, but I think it's far more plausible than just because someone says something hurts. Uh Um, Have you done studies on, um, you know, are there some people that I suppose there are, there's just some people that kind of really like to flex and it's good for them. And there's some people that like to be more upright. There's my question about, can people kind of get into a habitual way of sitting that's kind of not optimal for them? I mean, maybe by, maybe by having the wrong idea that I really should, like, if I'm ever going to improve someone's posture and sitting, it's usually kind of helping them get rid of an idea that I need to be hmm. upright. And I think yeah. that I might be occasionally be able to help people with postural advice. Hmm. And, and I, I would, oh, I would be quite open to that. I would say though, if, if you were to ask a member of the public that if you were to make that statement to the public, you said, you know, I help quite a few people by changing their sitting posture. They're all going to assume you're making them sit bolt upright and that they're yeah, all yeah. these slouchy, moody teenagers that are, you know, just need a kick in the ass and be told to sit up straight. Whereas that proportion of that time, it'll be telling people to sit back into the chair, relax and reduce the tension. And so it's definitely possible that we can modify some of that. But again, there are, if we look at almost like um, when we look at posture, a lot of what we see when we look at posture is shoulder position, you know, as opposed to spinal curvature. And there are strong genetic links when we look at posture and it, it doesn't predict back pain that much. So it's, it's I see it just as a way to reduce compression, reduce tension, make people comfortable. The problem is that it's it's all connected. If you think, you know, for example, let's say if I see a woman with persistent back pain who sits very upright and who I would like to change her posture just because it's another way to reduce tension in her system. It can sometimes be the case, quite commonly, that she might be reluctant to slouch because it's not very ladylike. She thinks that her tummy looks fat when she sits down. 
Therefore, she clenches her tummy, which reinforces the tension. And it's tied up with the fact that, well, you know, since she had her baby, she doesn't feel as strong to her pelvic floor and her tummy. And then, you know, it ties in a whole lot of other sense, um, thoughts and emotions about bodily integrity and feeling healthy and young. And, and therefore, when she tries to be active, exercise hurts. And so a lot of the time we're trying to just piece together those things. And I, I won't... I won't succeed in getting that lady, to use that example, to truly relax and let her tummy go soft if I don't reassure her that it's safe and that she doesn't understand it. And so I would spend less time talking about pain science and just asking her, like, if you're feeling pain and your muscles are sore, what would you do if you're, if it was your neck muscles that were sore and tight? And she'd say things, well, like, I'll put some heat on it, I'd rub it and try to relax it. And, and we have this disconnect that we get that if it's my neck and shoulders, it's good to relax it and put some heat on it and get her tension. But if it's back and tummy, we must be harder and more tense and six pack and all that kind of stuff. And of yeah. course, if you tie in pelvic girdle pain, it's tied in with the same thing. Okay. Uh, so manual uh, lifting, lifting on the job. There's another kind of biomechanical thing that's plausibly mm -hmm. related to pain. How likely, how often are you going to work with someone on, hey, how are you lifting stuff? Is that never going to happen? Or are you maybe going to do that from time to time? So, so this is probably like the sitting and all that. One of those things where we, we can see two things that are, con again, seemingly contradictory. So if you ask the question in a systematic review, which has been done, do people with back pain end up with, sorry, do people who do lots of lifting and bending say, do they end up with more disabling back pain long-term? No. And we can say that with a reasonable degree of confidence. That does not in any way mean you don't get lots of back pain uh, because back pain is really common. And it also doesn't mean that they mightn't even get more back pain in the short term. Because you got to remember when we're asking people these, in these studies, you're measuring people say in 1990, who does lots of bending and going back 20 years later and seeing now, not who's got some back pain or got it, you know, incidentally every six months for 10 years, but who now is disabled. And in that intervening period of time, most adults will have had back pain and would, it will have come and gone. And the predictors of that back pain staying are not just the lifting, it's all that other stuff. Now, the reason I bring that up is that if I went into a place my father worked in construction all his life. And if I went into a place where there was lots of guys, you know, pouring concrete and fixing steel in, in the ground, and I said, none of this causes back pain, they'd probably want to hit me and they'd probably be right because it does hurt your back um, and you will get back pain from doing it. But that might not be the kind of back pain that causes them to be off work and on disability 10 years later. Because, you know, if I... Um, as the kind of sedentary middle-aged man go off out into the garden in the spring and I haven't done it for a while, you know, physical work, if you're not used to it, is going to make you sore. It doesn't necessarily cause long-term disability, though. So there's that difference between can something cause pain and tissue responses in the short term? For sure, any load can, and lifting can, and twisting can, and sprinting and running can. Does that mean, however, we should never let you lift or bend? That's a big call. And does it mean it's the only reason you wouldn't recover? So, and I would think if we think about, so um, car accidents, you cannot say, you know, and we talk about whiplash, does the car accident cause long-term damage? Well, they only got the pain when they had the accident. So the accident is clearly a part of the picture. But if you look at the predictors of who ends up with long-term whiplash, it can't be explained by the speed of the accident, whether there was a fatality, the direction they had their head turned, whether there was an airbag, none of those parameters predicted. 
it's much more around the other stuff, if that makes sense. So the reason I'm, this is a very long-winded answer, as you can tell, this is tricky to explain in a leaflet. If I communicate a short, simple, catchy message in a leaflet or a patient brochure saying, lifting doesn't matter, nobody gets back pain because they're lifting, that could quite easily be dismissed by a patient because they'll say, well, no, the first time I got back pain, it was when I was lifting that heavy bag. And so I don't know how we get that balance right because we we don't want to go around scaring people saying, oh, my goodness, if you ever twist the wrong way one time, you're finished forever. So acknowledging that, yes, you can get sore and it can hurt, but part of that recovery is not avoiding it and getting strong for it. So if you flick it to something that's not as back pain related, if it's around hamstring injuries or running related injuries, I'm pretty sure if you looked at hamstring injuries, running pretty fast is a risk factor. But we don't then tell athletes, hamstrings are bad, so don't run fast or try and run slow and don't ever return to it. If it's something that's important for your sport or your work, you've got to go back to it. And so our message is, there's always a risk with these things, but we seem to be able to reduce the risk by exposing you to it and doing a bit and a bit more and a bit more. So I would prefer if you told me your job is going to involve lifting 40 kilos. Let's say in two months' time, you're going to lift 40 kilos 50 times in a day. I would say the current strategy here in Ireland would be tell you that's a really bad idea. Don't train you to do it. See if we can get a hoist to do a bit of it. And then that's pretty much it. Instead of trying to see for is it necessary? And if it is necessary, then conditioning you to do it as much as you can and and. You know, I think that's a better option. Whereas at the moment, um, we're not empowering people to get conditioned for work. Um, and also there's a whole um, medical legal or, I suppose, liability scare in the background. Right, right. So so what are you uh, working on right now? What are your most latest research uh, interests? What, what What's your biggest curiosity? So we've... Um, I suppose I haven't laid on some of these things. So Peter Kent and Peter Sullivan in Australia, they've just finished a big clinical trial looking at um, three different interventions. So they took a big bunch of people in Perth and Sydney in Australia looking at three different interventions. One was usual care. So again, a good comparison group to see, look, because you want to be better than that, obviously. And then what we call CFT or cognitive functional therapy delivered in two ways. One with additional technology to actually tell people how to bend and move a little bit better. And the other one was the, you know, safety without that additional technological um, output. That We hope to have the results from that next month, actually, I think, October, because all the data has been collected. Um, and so that'll be interesting because, again, it'll be another different group of physios teaching a different group of uh, patients with a different comparator to try and see are we getting consistency in some of these trials. Um, so that's probably the big one we're waiting for right now. And then, of course, I have currently... Um, eight PhD students in Limerick here studying a range of things related mostly to persistent pain. So for example, I have three students just starting right now and they're looking at community-based rehab for musculoskeletal pain. That's Rachel Moore. Um, Abby Brown is looking at sleep and the role of sleep in persistent pain. And then Kuiva is looking at tele-rehab and telehealth for chronic conditions broadly. And so they're they're in different areas, but in the area, and I have several other PhD students who are kind of in the later stages of um, of their research. And I suppose, um, like every researcher, you're always on the lookout for more money. So I'll be submitting some grant applications in the next couple of months as well. Well, I hope you get a lot more money to do a lot more research. I've loved what <laughs> you've done so far. I'm looking forward to what you already got in the works. 
Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, where can people find more? Tell us where people can find more about what you're doing. Sure. So uh, I work at the University of Limerick. So if they search Kieran O'Sullivan at the University of Limerick, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, at least. I shouldn't say social media. I've limited myself to Twitter. So that's at Kieran O'Sullivan. Uh, and obviously, um, yeah, they're probably the best places to try and find me. Well, thank you very much for oh, coming. Sorry, I suppose. Uh, sorry, I should add, we have a website called pain-ed.com. And that, while we don't put out a lot of new material out on that, there is a section on that called patient stories. And sometimes physios find that useful as a way to refer patients to um, uh, their own patients to that section, almost to kind of provide reassurance that some people have gone through a process like this. And it's not just the physio telling you that. Thanks a lot for coming on. Lovely. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Better Movement podcast. If you enjoyed it, please like and subscribe. And if you want to support the podcast, go to toddhargrove.substack.com and become a subscriber.